0: This is Unvoiced. Carl. Chrissy met Carl in the waiting room of her psychiatrist's office. She watched him sign in at the reception desk while pretending to read the two year old copy of Hello magazine in her lap. Carl was over six feet tall with short, dark brown hair that stuck up at the back. He was the skinniest guy Chrissy had ever seen. From under his loose grey t-shirt, his clavicle poked out, and Chrissy reckoned she could snap it like a wishbone if she wanted to. His skin was so pale, Chrissy could almost see his veins and arteries, and behind his shirt, his translucent, beating heart. He was exactly her type, tall and sickly. When Chrissy came out of her appointment, Carl was waiting for her with a bouquet of white roses, which blended beautifully into his skin. Carl was moody and mysterious. Kind of like Mr. Rochester, if Mr. Rochester wore Carhartt and drank flat whites. It was two weeks into their relationship when Chrissy found out his secret. They were at her flat, watching Titanic on her laptop. Towards the end, Chrissy started to cry. As the first big tear rolled down her cheek, she felt Carl's body stiffen and heard a sharp intake of breath. When the second tear came out, She felt him lick her face. What the fuck are you doing? Chrissy cried, leaning away from him on the sofa. She moved her hand up to where his tongue had been, as if he had just hit her. Carl looked embarrassed. He slipped his tongue back into his mouth and paused before sighing and saying, Look, Chrissy, there's something I haven't told you. What? Well, you know how we never go out for dinner together? How I always say... ''I've already eaten. Let's just go for a drink instead.'' ''Yeah, so?'' ''Well, that's because I don't eat what you do.'' ''What, are you vegan or something?'' Carl wrinkled his nose. ''Oh, gross. No, I, I'm not a vegan. I'm just sort of like a vampire.'' Chrissy frowned at him. ''Oh, don't be cute, Carl.'' ''I'm serious,'' he said. ''Except I don't drink human blood. I drink human tears.'' And don't worry, I don't turn people into vampires. He touched her arm and said softly, I was born like this. It took Chrissy a few days to process Carl's dietary requirements, but eventually she accepted him, baggage and all, and for a while they were happy. Not always, of course. Carl had to feed at least once every couple of days, and this took a toll on their relationship. He always seemed to pick the most inopportune times to eat. Recently, they had taken a trip to the seaside. They were sitting on a patio by the beach, having cocktails in the sunshine. I'm so hungry, moaned Carl. Oh, but hon, we're having such a nice time. Do you really have to eat now? Babe, you know I'm hypoglycemic. I could have a seizure. Well, I mean, you've never actually had that diagnosis confirmed, Chrissy said, reaching for the bowl of peanuts on the table. So... What? You'd risk me having a fit just so you can have a nice time, Carl said, pointing a finger at her. No, babe, of course not. That's not what I meant. You know I can't help this, Chrissy. You know I don't enjoy making you cry. I know, I know. It's just we're on holiday and I'm relaxed and I don't mean to be selfish, I know it's not your fault. Chrissy gave him a weak smile and sighed. It's fine, it's okay. You can go ahead. Carl reached over and squeezed her hand. ''Thanks, babe. Remember, I love you.'' He paused, took a sip of his pina colada, as if he was thinking of what to say, and then began. ''I've noticed that lately you keep asking me if I like what you're wearing and it just makes me wonder why you're so insecure. Like, where does that stem from? Is it your relationship with your dad?'' Chrissy stared out towards the ocean. Her eyes got wet and the horizon started to blur. Carl closed in. Afterwards, back at the hotel, they lay on the bed, Carl satiated and sleepy, Chrissy drained and emotional. Carl rolled over and pulled Chrissy into his arms. She lay her head on his chest and then looked up and kissed him. His lips were soft and salty. After their holiday, they returned to the city, Chrissy more exhausted than when they had left. Because of all the swimming and walking they did, Carl had been extra hungry and had needed to feed five times over the weekend. Chrissy's eyes were red and swollen. "'Why can't you drink other people's tears?' she asked him as she lay her suitcase on her bed and began to unpack. Carl looked at her and scratched his head. "'I mean, I could, but, babe, yours tastes so much better, like liquid saltwater taffy, sweet and salty and mine.' He grinned and licked his lips. Besides, how do you feel about me licking another girl's face? Chrissy was throwing dirty clothes into her laundry basket. I mean, obviously, I don't want you to do that, but well maybe we should do some research. I bet you could find them online, you know, like in a jar or something. Carl froze and stared at her. In a jar? Are you serious, Chrissy? Do you really think you could trust someone selling jars over the internet? Where would these tears be coming from? I don't want to drink tears from some exploited child in the third world country. Well maybe they have fair trade tears for sale. Carl huffed and threw up his hands. Oh, yeah. like I have the money to buy fair trade. Gosh sometimes I feel you think I enjoy this, like I chose to be this way. No, babe, come on. I I don't think that at all. I'm just thinking out loud here. What about your own tears? Could you drink your own? Carl gaped at her. That's insane. That's like me saying to you, oh, hey, Chrissy, I'm fed up with you drinking water all the time. Why didn't you just drink your own urine? Do you want me to get sick? Is that what you want? He shouted, throwing the bottle of sun cream he'd been unpacking against the wall. Chrissy let out a little scream and started to cry. No, of course not. Of, co- of course I don't want you to get sick. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She reached for the box of tissues on the bedside table so she could wipe her face. Ah, don't twist those tears, Carl said, swatting her hand away. He bent down to lick her face, moaning into her skin, his tongue sticky. As their relationship reached the five-month mark, Chrissy developed a thicker skin. It became harder and harder to make her cry. She watched Million Dollar Baby, stone-faced, and Schindler's List got barely a sniffle. Carl tried everything to make her cry. He pretended to leave her. He told her he had cheated on her. He insulted her family and friends. He even threatened to kill her pet goldfish, Ludwig. Nothing worked. It was as if her tear ducts had sealed shut. So, parched and famished, Carl began looking elsewhere. Chrissy saw him a few weeks later on a park bench with a freckly young woman who was sobbing. Carl was scraping her face with a mini squeegee and collecting the tears with a red plastic funnel. Chrissie waved in their direction, content that it was not her sitting on that bench. She threw back her head, closed her eyes and felt the warm sun on her face. Tears of relief welled up behind her eyelids. When she opened her eyes, she saw Carl staring at her tear-stained face and walked speedily out of the park. Sock. The relationship lasted six months the breakup was over the phone and Lucy was devastated she cried non-stop for six days and six nights and on the seventh day she rested after all the crying she decided to give her room a spring clean reorganise her life and get herself back on track she pushed aside her bed and amongst the dust bunnies and chocolate wrappers was her ex-boyfriend's old sock she picked it up it was a plain black sock, similar to hers, but with different ribbing on the toe, so she knew it was his. Lucy burst into tears. Her flatmate ran into the room and said, ''What's wrong?'' I, I, ''I've i found Michael's sock.'' ''Saw?'' So, asked her flatmate, putting an arm around her friend. Well, ''What should I do with it?'' ''What do you mean?'' ''Like, should I keep it?'' Why on earth would you keep one of his old socks? It's the only thing I have from him. That's because he was an arsehole who never gave you anything. Lucy looked at the sock and shook her head. He must have grabbed one of my socks by mistake. Oh, he wouldn't have left with just one sock. Throw the sock out. This is unhealthy. But Lucy didn't throw it out. At first, she kept it under her pillow and would stroke her face with it at night and use it to dry her tears. But one day, two buttons popped off her cardigan. She had been eating a lot of break-up brownies, and this gave her an idea. She sewed the two buttons on her ex-boyfriend's sock, giving him a lovely quizzical face. She adored her sock-puppet boyfriend They would stay up talking all night, getting to know each other again. He would ask about her family, and now he remembered all her cousins' names and offered to drive her grandma to the hospital. Of course, being a sock, he couldn't drive, but the thought was sweet. They still had rough patches, like the time when one of his eyes fell off. At first, it looked like there was nothing to be done because she had no more thread in her sewing kit. But she swore she would be his nursemaid until the day she died. However, in the end, Lucy found some thread, operated on him and he recovered. Lucy's flatmate often heard her chatting away in her room. But Lucy explained that she was just Skyping with her headphones on. It felt quite exciting to have to hide their love... It was just like when they first got together and he still had another girlfriend. Eventually Lucy stopped caring about being judged and wore her sock puppet boyfriend on her hand wherever she went. People in town would see her whispering to her sock puppet in the supermarket aisle, at the bus stop, in the doctor's office. Lucy's flatmate kicked her out and Lucy and her sock puppet boyfriend had to move back in with her parents. Lucy's parents had never liked him. But they definitely did not warm to the sock reincarnation of Lucy's boyfriend. Lucy's mother would sneak into her room at night and try and steal the sock puppet, but Lucy clung onto him tightly. She enjoyed being the big spoon this time around. After a while, her family decided to stage an intervention, and her beloved sock puppet boyfriend was snatched from her by her lumpy cousin, Justine, and thrown into the fireplace. Lucy's heart forever broken. She lived out the rest of her lonely life working as a sales assistant in the menswear section of a local department store. The legend goes that her ghost still haunts the sock aisle, searching for her long-lost love. Frankenfein You've been lucky, Frank, said the doctor as she peered down at him on the hospital bed. If this had happened a few years ago, you'd be dead. But medicine is moving in leaps and bounds these days, Frank. Leaps and bounds. Frank blinked at the blinding whiteness of the room. He tried to move his arms, his legs. You wouldn't believe how many people have had trampoline accidents just like you and not lived to tell the tale. "'As I said, Frank, you are a lucky, lucky man. "'But it might be a while before you're showing off in the back garden again.' "'But, doctor, my back, my legs, I can't feel a thing,' Frank said, "'his eyes darting around the room. "'He saw his wife, Beth, redundantly pat his hand to comfort him. "'How insensitive,' Frank thought. "'Not to worry, Frank,' said the doctor. "'Yes, you are paralysed from the neck down for now.' "'But you're the perfect candidate for a new clinical study,' she paused dramatically. "'On the first human head transplants. "'What? What are you?' "'Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Beth swatting at his lifeless arm in an attempt to shush him. "'It's quite safe, Frank, I assure you. "'What we do is uh, we take your head, pop it on a new body, "'fuse the spinal cords together and a bish-bash-bosh,' Bob's your uncle that sounds brilliant Beth cooed turning to Frank and grinning giving him the thumbs up Frank alarmed asked have you done this on other people well technically no not yet you would be the first we've tested it on rats and chimps and in both cases 75% regained their motor skills in 12 to 18 months it worked beautifully for most of the animal test subjects Most. A stocky young orderly bustled in and started taking the brakes off on Frank's bed and began wheeling him out of the room. ''Where am I going?'' asked Frank. He tried to turn his head, to look at Beth and the doctor, but he couldn't, so he directed his question to the beige wall in front of him. On it was a painting of a mother duck leading her chicks across a country road, a lorry looming on the horizon. The doctor stepped in front of the bed to address Frank. I'm going to take you and your wife down to our brand new state-of-the-art cryogenics lab to take a look at the bodies we have available. Since you're our first patient, you've got your pick of the bunch. She stood back and gestured to the door to let Beth go ahead. Thank you so much, Doctor, said Beth, stepping out into the hallway, knocking into Frank's bed as she went. Do we have to do it right now? No time like the present, Frank! The doctor cried, throwing her arms up. The lab was a long, white room, not much wider than a corridor. The walls were lined with clear, upright caskets, which hummed and reminded Frank of sunbeds. He tried to pretend that these weren't dead bodies, but just people getting a tan. They were in a tanning salon, he told himself, not window shopping for the dead. Orderly had propped up the bed so Frank could sit up and see the room clearly. The left wall had women and the right wall had men. The bodies were naked, but the top part of the container had a black sticker over it, covering their faces. It reminded Frank of the grainy footage of streakers on football pitches, their genitals censored with a black box. The orderly rolled the bed along slowly, and Beth and the doctor stopped at each body to discuss it, like they were picking Frank out a new suit. Oh, no, Mrs Burns, this chap has one leg significantly shorter than the other. Your husband would have to wear one of those platform shoes. No, no, we can do better than that. Oh, yes, thank you. You're quite right, doctor. We wouldn't want that. Oh, what about this one? Beth pointed at a tall, rugged body. Frank would have guessed he'd been a lumberjack when he was alive. Ah, perhaps, perhaps. Let's take a look round the back. She peered around the back of the chamber. Ah, as I suspected. Take a look, Mrs Burns. Beth looked behind the glass box, grimaced and shook her head. The doctor continued... "'I mean, maybe hairy backs don't bother some people, "'but this fellow looks as though he could have been a woolly mammoth "'in a previous life, doesn't he? (laughs) "'No, no, we can do better than this.' "'They kept rolling past the bodies. "'As they stopped in front of a middle-aged, pot-bellied man, "'Frank said, "'What about this one, love?' "'Beth looked at him like he was suggesting they graft his head on the body of a gorilla. "'Frank, that's basically your body now. "'Don't be silly.' "'We have this wonderful opportunity, so we might as well get an upgrade. "'When your phone contract is up, do you get the same model?' "'No, you get an iPhone 8!' "'She shook her head and gestured for the orderly to keep moving. "'What sort of thing are you looking for exactly, Mrs Burns?' asked the doctor. "'Beth brushed her fringe out of her eyes and blinked. "'Well, doctor, I've never been too fussy.' As you can see, she said as she swept her arm across Frank's body. But since we have such a wide variety of options, I'd like to get one taller than me. I'm five foot nine, you see, and I've always been a little self-conscious about it. I mean, ideally, I'd want a mix of Channing Tatum and George Clooney. The doctor laughed. (laughs) Well, you certainly know what you want. That's excellent I'm sure we're going to find the perfect body for you, Mrs Burns. Frank cleared his throat. But what about what... Beth put her hand on the bed and they stopped in front of chamber number 12. Oh, she breathed. This one is perfect. Frank looked at it. The body was of a man who couldn't be older than 35 and clearly worked out a lot. His chest was hairless and his abs looked like ripples in sand. On a white sticker on the front of the chamber, there were a number of statistics. Height, six foot three. Weight, twelve stone eight. Skin tone, white. Sunrise flush. "'Oh, please, doctor, tell me there's nothing wrong with this one,' Beth pleaded. "'How did he die?' She crossed her fingers and whispered, ''Don't let it be something gross, don't let it be something gross.'' The doctor peered at the chart next to the chamber. ''We're in luck,'' she said, turning to grin at Beth and Frank. ''Brain aneurysm.'' ''Yes!'' Beth punched the air in victory, holding her hand up to Frank for a high-five and then, remembering, picked up Frank's hand and high-fived it for him. The operation was a success, Frank learned to move his new body and after 18 months was able to walk and feed himself and do pretty much everything on his own. But it still didn't feel like home. Beth, however, had really taken to the body. She was always buying it clothes and dressing it up and taking it out to dinner with her friends. Frank didn't feel like talking at these dinners. He would just sit quietly and eat his salad. Beth said it would be a waste to get such a nice fit body and ruin it with carbs, while Beth and her friends would pull up his shirt and marvel at his abs, pointing out how you could see his pecs through the fine linen. Frank would mouth, sorry, to onlooking patrons and waiters. He's like my very own monster, Beth would say. I like to call him Frankenfine." The girls would cackle and feel Frank's biceps. He would say nothing. Before the transplant, Beth and Frank had been homebodies, spending most Saturday nights at home watching telly. But now Beth had them going out almost every night. "'I just think that you've been given this second chance at life and that we should take advantage of that. Carpe diem, you know?' she said one evening as she dusted off the shoulders of his new leather jacket. "'Besides, I love watching how jealous other women get when they see you. "'Oh, yeah?' He moved in to kiss her on the lips, but she ducked down and kissed him on his chest with a big loud, "'Mwah! Good thing I'm not wearing lipstick,' she said before heading into the bathroom to put on her makeup. Frank turned and looked at himself in the mirror. He was wearing a pale blue shirt, a black leather jacket, chinos and suede slip-on shoes. He wondered if he'd made an effort to dress like this before the accident whether Beth would have fancied him more.' He pulled aside his shirt collar and examined his scar. In public, Beth would always make him cover the scar with a collar or a scarf. But in bed, at night, she would kiss the scar over and over and wrung her fingertips over the raised skin. I will love you, she would say, and Frank would say it back, even though he knew she wasn't talking to him. Love Rats was written by Katerina Inchisa and directed by Georgie State, starring Megan Greaves. Music for this episode was composed by Andrew Armfield, with dubbing mixed by Jared Turner and original sound editing, also by Andrew Armfield. Theme music for this series was brought to you by Patrick Craig and photography by Aaron Rush. Juniper Tree Unvoiced is created and produced by Louisa Smith. Next time. Ever feel like you've met someone before? just in another life two strangers meet in a park but with Emma and Alex it might be more than just deja vu from the writer of The Old Friend and The Calm comes a touching play about love and loss Benchmarks is up next on Unvoiced for more information on this and all of our other episodes check out our website at jtunvoiced.squarespace.com or follow us on twitter at jtunvoiced This is Unvoiced.